Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. Since January, U.S. Border Patrol has apprehended more than 22,000 people in the Tucson sector. Many of those people arrive at the border seeking asylum. Also since January, Tucson's Benedictine Monastery has served as the largest local refuge for asylum seekers, but that will end soon. On today's show, we talk about what Tucson can do to continue responding to those in need. At a visit to the monastery on Tuesday, I found Sagrario Estrella packing snack bags for traveling asylum seekers. A native of Nogales, Arizona, Estrella has spent the last seven years in New York City, but came to the monastery this week with a group of volunteers from the Archdiocese of New York to lend a hand. So currently I work um, for an organization that provides legal services for all the released immigrants in New York City. And there was an opportunity for us to come help um, at the monastery. So some of us volunteered and there's gonna be three groups coming down, I think group of like five people each. And what made me come here is because, um, well, I wanted to help the immigrants from the first, from the earlier stages. And I imagine you've done everything under the sun while you're here right now. You're making up snack bags of, of chips and goldfish and things like that. But I would imagine day to day, hour to hour, what you're doing changes. Yeah, it changes drastically. So it, we actually arrived on Sunday night, the Cinco de Mayo, ironically. And we were quickly introduced to like how to do an intake when the immigrants first arrive. And it's very important to note that uh, the monastery treats all the immigrants as guests. So they're called guests, they are our guests, um, because they're only going to be here for a few days. They introduce them, they cut their um, wristbands. So CBP puts on wristbands to identify each immigrant. So that's cut off. So, and they give them water, so we were given a quick introduction and we assisted them with that on Sunday. Uh, but yesterday was a very busy day. We worked for about 12 hours. Primarily, um, we helped with intake. One of our colleagues did transportation, so he took immigrants to the Greyhound buses so they could be connected to their next location. Um, some of us prepared travel bags. So the monastery provides travel bags for each immigrant family uh, according to the number of days they'll be on their journey. I would imagine since you work in the legal field with immigrants in New York that this could shed some interesting light if not for you if some of your colleagues when you go back to tell them the experience on the very front end. Exactly. As a legal services agency we we hear most of the atrocities that they encounter on their journey. So what I've noticed here, um, here they actually are treated as humans. They're treated as people. Um, so I think that's actually what I'm going to bring back to my colleagues, that even though there is a lot of negativity in the news and um, what we hear of how they're mistreated, actually the community of Tucson has come together to assist these immigrants because about like 200 people can come through in a single day or in, you know, uh, in the week and they assist all of them. Having grown up in the southwest and southern Arizona, were you surprised to see that Tucson was opening its arms uh, or, or was this the southern Arizona that, that you remembered growing up? Not at all because um, Tucson is a very 
open-minded community. So uh, I actually, my the first instances that I worked with refugees was here in Tucson with the Somali Bantu community. Also um, at the International Rescue Committee, I was an intern there and also assisted a, a variety of immigrants. So. I've known, and especially because of the relationship with the University of Arizona, we get people uh, from all over the world, so Tucson is very welcoming, and it actually adds to our diversity. If you get a chance, are you going to take your colleagues uh, home uh, down in Nogales? So we're planning on it. That's um, If we get some time, because as I said, on Monday, our, our first complete day, we were here for 12 hours. And we're accustomed to that because we do immigration clinics back home. <laughs> but hopefully we'll take a break um, because I do want them to experience the border um, and also especially how it's changed. For 80 years, the Benedictine Sisters of Perpetual Adoration owned the Tucson Monastery. They sold the property to developer Ross Rolney in 2018. Since January, Rolney has allowed Catholic Community Services to use the space as a refuge for thousands of people, mostly Central Americans, passing through Tucson on their way to await asylum hearings elsewhere in the U.S. <laughs> Teresa Cavendish with okay. Catholic Community Services and the Casa Alitas Shelter okay. is the force behind this temporary shelter. We sat in the sanctuary to talk about this months-long community-driven effort. Cavendish says when they got access to the building, the need was immediate. We thought we were going to have a couple of weeks to spend a little time figuring out how we were going to use this space, that, that we had all of our shelter needs um, balanced throughout the community and other locations. And at 6 in the morning, I got a call from ICE saying um, that they had 80-some folks that they needed a home for that night. So we moved into the Benedictine within six hours. And... Um, that, that was quite the rush, I'll tell you that. Uh, it's grown since then. So in the history of Casalitas, we've had about 15,000 folks that we have worked with, and that's in our five-year history. 7,600 of those folks have come since the end of January, and they've been greeted and served here in the Benedictine. We're sitting here in the sanctuary at, at the Benedictine. Our listeners can hear things going on behind us, kids, families uh, moving through here. One of the things I think a lot of people don't understand is this is temporary. You all are not housing people here for very long at all. No, not long at all. Folks are really only with us for 24 to 72 hours unless something has gone um, astray in their normal arrangements. So uh, people do not arrive in Tucson intending to stay in Tucson. They uh, enter the United States with uh, family and sponsors already residing here who have agreed to accept responsibility for them. And so our job is essentially to keep them off the streets of Tucson until they have made arrangements to move forward to join these family members throughout any one of the 48 states. So uh, that process is, is a, a pretty clean process. They're able to join us and go through our travel room and talk to their families within the first day that they are here. And their families are responsible for buying their transportation tickets, usually through Greyhounds, every once in a while through airplane travel. And then after um, the guests who are with us, 
contacted their family. The families are putting the money together to make those ticketing arrangements, calling us back with confirmation numbers, and we post that information so the guests here can see that they're moving forward, they know what day they're traveling, what time they're traveling, and then they wait for a volunteer driver to help them get to the Greyhound station or the, the airport. And usually it happens pretty quickly. I noticed as we were walking through Obviously, this is a stressful situation for the folks who are here, but I saw lots of smiles, especially on the faces of the little kids. So you all are really making it the best you possibly can for them. Absolutely. Um, for the folks who come here, we are often the first welcome that they've received within the United States. and. That means a lot when you consider that they are fleeing from whatever situation in their home countries caused them to, to want to leave the country of their birth. That's a really significant decision to make. So they've been through you know, violence, through um, poverty, sometimes starvation. There's fear and trauma just uh, intertwined among the stories of their lives. So they've made this decision that for the safety and protection of their family, for their children, that they had to flee. Then they've taken a pretty harrowing journey to get here. They have turned themselves over to immigration officials, have been in um, a form of detention for several days at a time, and now they've been put onto a bus or a van and driven deeper into a town they don't know, and um, been released in a parking lot. So. For them, that's, they're still under a level of trauma when they arrive here that most of us have never experienced. And the first thing that they see is other children outside playing, other families outside smiling, telling them it's going to be okay, that you're safe here, that this is not the government, that these people are here to help you. And so you often see the first sign of, of relief happening in a parking lot of the Benedictine when families realize that this might be okay. They don't have to have their same level of guard up. So then we bring them into this room, into the sanctuary, where we explain to them the different kind of services that we have available. And they still get to see other families. And they see children running around and toys and other kids are coming up and offering them something to play with and trying to engage them in, in activities. And you finally see people really relax. You mentioned when you opened the Benedictine, you'd gotten a call from ICE and Immigration's Custom Enforcement officers said to you all, we have people. Is that how people get here? Are Border Patrol and ICE dropping them off or do you have to go find them in the community? No, we definitely don't have to go find them in the community. Everybody who comes to us is brought to us by ICE or Border Patrol. That is the arrangements. That is our purpose. We are here to receive these folks. So every morning I start communicating with ICE bright and early before 6.30 in the morning. And they're asking us what our capacity is to receive folks here or at other shelters in the community that we partner with. And then they let me know how many people that, that they need to place for that day. 
separately, Border Patrol also releases folks. So Border Patrol will, will move folks into the ICE network for release, and then when ICE calls a halt to it and says this is all we can accept for the day, then Border Patrol will begin doing independent releases. So we respond directly with Border Patrol. Again, they call us, let us know how many folks they have, and at different points during the day when they intend to release them, and they release them to us. The only time that we would ever see a bus station or a street release would be if there was absolutely no capacity left in any of the shelters in Tucson. Right now, we have the potential of going up, um, if we partner with the county and with the city, we have the potential of going up to about 700 bed spaces in Tucson. And that seems like a lot, but about three weekends ago, we needed every one of those. We've all been really successful at avoiding the street releases and the bus station releases. It's a commitment that we have as Casalitas, as the, um, the end project, a separate uh, migrant shelter network in Tucson, the city and the county. And ICE has that same level of commitment to work with us and Border Patrol is getting there. We as a community are, are facing a change because the Benedictine's not going to be available for very much longer. What happens then? So at the end of July, um, we will no longer have access to the building, and that's because the owner is continuing his development plans, and so we, we thank him and we're very grateful for the time that we have spent here. But we all, we all knew it was temporary. So we are looking at other sites within the community. We're continuing to develop our partnerships with other NGOs and faith-based within the community and doing our spin-up or pop-up shelters, as we call them. Um, there are properties in the community that we have been pointed towards to take a look at to see if they would have similar large capacity as the monastery. We need another large capacity shelter. We have it said several partnerships with this, with smaller shelters. That takes a lot of energy to run these separate shelters. And you end up repeating a lot of functions and services in different locations throughout the city, um, which is which is all good, but you sort of lose some energy and lose some um, effectiveness in your work when you're spread too far apart. When we have those smaller partner shelters as well as, as some of the houses that Casa Alitas operates out of and, and has for five years now, um, that's good as long as we're partnering with a larger location where we can be um, more effective for the, the big releases that are happening in our community. You know, when you have we had one day where 240 folks were released to us here at the monastery. If we had had to split that up, <clears throat> excuse me, among a five or six different shelters, that would have been really, really complicated. This is an all-volunteer or nearly all-volunteer operation, isn't it? The number I heard was 400 people, and that number needs to grow. We absolutely are 400 volunteers strong here. Uh, we have about 100 volunteers who are with us at any time during a day, working in different shifts in different departments. They literally run this place. So many of the great ideas and innovations are these volunteers putting ideas and you know personnel force behind things that we're seeing change shelter work across the United States because of what these folks are coming up with. So we encourage people to please come and volunteer with us and be part of this effort. How long realistically can Casa Litas and all your now growing number of partner organizations keep this running? Well, we've kept it running for five years so far. 
I don't see an endpoint. What I've seen is growth. And that is growth in certainly the numbers of folks who are coming to us, but growth in community involvement, growth in community commitment. Our ability to, to sustain this kind of work is echoed by our community's ability to care about other people who need assistance. And I was born and raised here in Tucson, and I think our capacity to care about each other is infinite. Cavendish says she's always seeking volunteers. Contact information is on our website. Tucson's largest temporary migrant shelter is scheduled to close in July. This week, we're talking about how the city can continue to respond to those in need. Tucson City Councilman Steve Kozachik represents the ward that includes the Benedictine Monastery. He was involved in getting developer Ross Rolney to loan the building to Catholic Community Services. Over Easter weekend, the number of migrants was more than the monastery could handle, so the city and county opened emergency shelters in rec centers. Kozachik says that can happen again, but it's not a long-term solution. I don't believe that the government ought to be running this. I don't think we ought to be closing down community centers and taking people, taking those programmatic obligations that we have uh, to the community away. As long as we can get uh, churches and nonprofits to step up to the plate and offer their facilities. We have four or five in the community right now. We have a couple who have responded since uh, the public meeting last Friday. So we're looking at options. Uh, we still have some time. And I'm, I'm believing, based on recent history, that this community will step up to the plate. And we're not going to have to start shutting down community centers in order to house the migrants. Now, the caveat is that we don't know what we don't know. Uh, we didn't expect to be told by Border Patrol and ICE, anticipate 200 people per day for the indefinite future. That, that's what happened uh, in, in the week of running up to Easter. That's why we had to scramble. The whole nature of this is such that there is uncertainty in timing, there is uncertainty in quantity, and because of that, the government is not nimble enough and light enough on its feet to be able to react to that. We did it over one weekend. Uh, it was tough, and people were working overtime and giving of themselves. Uh, it would be better, though, if we kept this in the nonprofit world, the faith-based uh, community world, and had several sites uh, using Catholic Community Service as the primary intake, and then sort of filtering uh, the, the families out as they come in. The mayor said that weekend cost the city about $20,000 to open that emergency shelter and, and, and keep it running. Is there any possibility that that money will come back from the state or from the federal government, since it's Border Patrol and ICE who are, are dropping these migrants off? Or is that just $20,000 out of the budget and we're never going to see that again? Well, we're keeping a tab uh, and we're, we're keeping track of what the city and the county are putting into this. Chuck Huckleberry, county administrator of uh, put out a, a memo, and he is applying to have some of his uh, Stone Garden money repurposed to humanitarian aid. Uh, I've been in contact with uh, Chief Magnus, Chief of Police Magnus, and we are looking at the same thing. To the extent that the city receives Stone Garden monies, the option exists for uh, for jurisdictions to repurpose some of those dollars for purely humanitarian kinds of services. If we can do that, we might be able to recoup some of that twenty grand. More importantly, though, is that we know that based on memos that were sent out by Department of Homeland Security, that those dollars exist for, for humanitarian aid, things like food and clothing and transportation, those kinds of things, shelter. 
the problem is, is that nobody in our federal delegation, nor DHS, has quite been able to figure out how to crack the nut and get those dollars out onto the table so that we can actually access them. So Huckleberry's pursuing it. I'm trying to get Magnus to pursue it, uh, to find out if, 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 they're, if the dollars are there, let's have someone open that door and start putting them out into the, into the coffers of the local jurisdictions so that we can pass them on to the, uh, to the nonprofits. Again, not dollars that are going to go into the city's general fund or the county's general fund, but dollars that we'll use as a pass-through uh, to help pay for some of the costs that the, that the community is, is absorbing. I mean, you've been through the monastery. You saw rooms and rooms full of food and clothing and travel bags and, and blankets and all that stuff. That doesn't come for free. It comes out of people's own pocketbooks. And so if we can help those nonprofits, if we can help the community with these, uh, with these um, Stone Garden humanitarian aid dollars, uh, this, this is a use that, uh, that is undeniably immediate, an immediate need in the community. And I'm hoping that we can access those, those bucks. If we can't figure out, as you said, how to get that money on the table, can the city continue to do this? I believe that this is this at some point becomes a responsibility of the local governments, plural, not just the city, but the county and the surrounding jurisdictions. Uh, but that would be a that would be a last case. That would be a default case. It would be a case that we would have to turn to when the community is simply overwhelmed. And you again, you've seen the operation. You know that people have been doing this not just since the first of the year, but going back four or five years. It really became intense this year. Uh, so when we started churning through the, the hundreds and hundreds of people a day, uh, the community's getting tired. The volunteers are fatigued. Over uh, the over the uh, Easter weekend, we had uh, again dozens and dozens of people missing family events. You know, missing their Easter services and Passover and all that to be down at the monastery and cooking and cleaning and, and transporting and calling people on the uh, you know families on the phone. So yeah, at some point. At some point, the fatigue is going to set in. That's the reason we're continuing to make the call out to the community to get more people to step up to the plate. Uh, but I don't know, nobody knows when the tipping point comes and people are going to just exhale and say, I've, I've had it, i gotta t- I got to get some time off. And uh, at that point, then, then, then it will become our obligation. Because what's the alternative? To tell Border Patrol to drop these families off at the, on the corner of the Greyhound bus station? That, that's simply not, not an alternative that we can embrace. You know, here's the picture. You've got Border Patrol driving up to the Greyhound station, dropping off 50 or 60 people who don't speak the language, who've been on the road for days, if not weeks, who are tired, who are hungry, who are scared, who have been through trauma, and you hand them a bus ticket they can't read and say, find your next of kin in Spokane or Toledo or Tallahassee and, uh, and, and make your way there. That's not any way that this community is going to going to engage this. And if the, when, when and if the city has to step up to the plate and expend resources, then then we will be ready to do so as a last resort. That was Tucson City Councilman Steve Kozacek. Democrat Ann Kirkpatrick represents Arizona's second congressional district, which includes much of southern Arizona. She was in town this week visiting the monastery and taking tamales to volunteers to recognize their service to the community at large. I'm very proud of Southern Arizona and how the community has stepped up to help people. Uh, You know, it's a humanitarian crisis at the border, and that's how we're dealing with it here in Tucson. Uh, And it's just a wonderful, wonderful community effort. 
Pima County is looking at trying to use some stone garden funding in order to help offset some of the costs uh, of the, the shelters that have been set up. Is there anything the federal government can do? Is there anything your office can do to, to help Pima County if they can't get the stone garden money or to get the stone garden money? Absolutely. Uh, we're doing everything we can to help access stone garden money. Uh, but there's also talk in Congress about passing legislation that would provide emergency funding to offset some of these community costs. So you just had the, the mayor on talking about how expensive it's been for the city of Tucson. I think he mentioned the figure of $20,000 in a weekend. Uh, and so, yeah, we want to be there to help with this effort. You mentioned the humanitarian crisis at the border. Is there a larger crisis? Not that that isn't a crisis, but is the border in a whole in crisis? Well, there is a there is a crisis in Latin America, uh, in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, where the drug cartels have taken over as the government, uh, and so that is the underlying problem. Uh, that's why people are seeking asylum. How we deal with that is a, is a national foreign affairs issue, uh, and we're having those conversations in Congress. It's not an easy problem to solve. We started out talking about migrants uh, coming here to Tucson uh, and, and other places because they're asylum seekers. These aren't people necessarily trying to scale the wall. They're showing up at the ports, correct? That's correct. That's correct. They're not going through the uninhabited places at the border. They're showing up at the ports of entry. We don't want a wall in southern Arizona. 40% of our economy comes from the south. Uh, but, you know, the whole discussion about the wall is counterproductive. I mean, it's so expensive. It doesn't stop the cartels. The existing conversation is not solving that problem. And when it comes to the border, as you well know, your district has the border in it. There's more than just people that move back and forth across the border. Goods move back and forth across the border. The president has threatened a couple of times uh, a few weeks ago even to shut the border again. What does that do to the economy, especially in your district? Oh, it costs billions of dollars immediately if we shut down the, the borders. So what we want to do is increase commerce. Uh, we really rely on it. But, you know, the, it also, you know, affects Native American tribes. So the Tohono O'odham have land in Mexico, and they go back and forth across the border collecting medicinal and ceremonial herbs. So they don't want a wall. Uh, it just does not make sense. For those of us here, it doesn't make any sense. It seems like the farther away you get from the border, the more, say, if you're in Ohio, you think, oh, yeah, we need a, we need a wall. Uh, but we in southern Arizona know that that's not the solution. That was Democrat Ann Kirkpatrick, who represents Arizona's 2nd Congressional District. And that's the buzz for this week. Find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Ariana Brocious produced and edited the show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Andrea Kelly is the news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.